welcome along to a special edition of ED's podcast marking our Sustainable Development Goals Focus Week. Coming up on today's episode, is it SDG 13, net zero, carbon neutral or climate positive? We discuss the private sector's ever-evolving climate action language with the UN Global Compact UK. How can we build water access into our water stewardship plans? WaterAid is on hand to explain. And how can behaviour change help us prevent sewage discharges? We find out in discussion with PHS Group, who are kindly sponsoring this episode. Yes, hello, a very warm welcome to the ED podcast after what feels like, to be honest, a a very long time. You're listening to the voice of ED's senior reporter, Sarah George. And while you might have heard from me in our Sussy Talks interviews or on one of our recent webinars, I've been enjoying a fairly lengthy break from the task of being ED's podcast secretary. Um, And that's because we've been on a season break, our first ever season break. We've not published a podcast since July 22nd, to be specific. And we've taken a break to help us prepare for an all singing, all dancing relaunch. So like a new jingle, new imagery, a new co-host and maybe even a new name for our podcast series. As you probably noticed, we're not quite ready to unveil all of that in full. We still have some T's to cross and some I's to dot, namely some new studio equipment to get to grips with um, and overcoming Luke's indecisiveness on names and jingles. But we couldn't resist pulling together a special episode as part of our Sustainable Development Goals Focus Week. Um, This week, so that began on Tuesday, the 20th of September through to today, that's Friday, the 23rd of September, has been dedicated to providing information, inspiration and motivation for you all to take strides towards the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So we dedicated all of our events and exclusive content on ED.net to that aim. With less than eight years left to achieve the goals and with progress having actually gone backwards on some goals in some geographies during the pandemic, now is the time to be accelerating action and raising ambition on sustainable development, of course. But with the attention now directed at energy costs and with budgets in some sectors squeezed considerably, there's a risk that the narrative goes all in on short termism and that the sustainable part of sustainable development is lost or at least downplayed. To make sure that doesn't happen, we have been super busy this week. Um, I want to run through just some of the things we've been up to. We've published a blueprint report tracking progress against each goal and summarising opportunities for the business sector. We've also got another report about innovations driving progress towards the goals. We've interviewed former Unilever boss Paul Pullman and Sustainable Energy for All's CEO Damalola Ogbunyi. We've hosted more than five hours of webinars in total and we've reported on an SDG wish tree for the metaverse. I say we, and of course, Edie's content director, Luke Nichols, and content editor, Matt Mace, have been on hand to help me with all of this. But sadly, it's just me today. They aren't around for this episode. Luke, I can report, is hard at work on some long term projects. Matt, on the other hand, has phoned in on this podcast for a stag do. So make of that what you will. In this episode, we're going to be taking some deeper conversational dives into three SDGs which doubtless will have been top of mind for many of us this year. The goals we've got are SDG 13, climate action, SDG 6, clean water and sanitation, 
and SDG 14, Life Below Water. And we're going to go in that order with one great guest speaker on hand for each call. To start us off on hand for SDG 13, Climate Action is the Global Goals and Climate Programme Manager at the UN Global Compact's UK arm, Jessica Lobo. Jessica heads up the Compact's work to get businesses to set and deliver science-based emissions targets and net zero visions, and also its work to support businesses in SDG alignment holistically. So what better person to speak to for our first interview of this podcast episode? Let's play that talk with Jessica in full. Hello, Jessica. Welcome along to our special SDG podcast. How are we doing today? Hi, great. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me along. No, thank you for for taking the time. As we've said already in this episode, absolutely massive week in the sustainability space. So thank you for sparing um, some time and and who better to talk to about SDG 13 than someone that manages um, manages yeah UNGC's climate program and global goals program. Um, it's a fascinating title. I guess it'd be great to start with an introduction to yourself and a, a bit more information about that role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I joined the UN Global Compact Network UK about two and a half years ago. Um, prior to that, I was working in sustainability in the higher education sector, so specifically at um, LSE and, and City University of London. Um, and when I joined the, the network, I joined as the Global Goals Programme Manager. So a lot of the work that uh, I do with, with my team is around supporting businesses, really to understand what the SDGs are, identify how they can contribute to them and, and scale up you know, what they're doing to, um, to really advance their goals. I guess a part of that um, that work is not only supporting businesses, but also shaping a responsible business environment. And so um, particularly this year, we've been focusing our, our advocacy efforts on measuring up the UK's performance on the SDGs. So we've not only been working with our members, but also working with 100 different organisations and individuals to um, conduct research. It follows a similar exercise that was done in, in 2018 and, and culminates in a report which has almost 50 case studies of action that's already been done um, and over 120 recommendations of how we can really accelerate our efforts for the goals. So I suppose that's on the, the SDG side. Um, earlier this year, my role expanded to manage our climate action programming as well. So across the network, we lead on a number of, of events, working groups, um, facilitated learning programmes and, and networking opportunities, both for members of the UN Global Compact, but also the wider um, business community in the UK. And so our, our climate programming um, specifically focuses on, on how businesses can transition to a net zero future, um, looking at, I guess, science-based targets, uh, engaging with the circular economy and things like nature-based solutions, um, building resilience, and, and I guess we also look at, at climate reporting as well. So, yeah, a very lengthy to-do list and, yeah, glad to hear about the policy advocacy and definitely remember that 2018 measuring up report and looking forward to um, reading that next one. But I guess here today we're here to speak about some of those other things you mentioned under the climate um, umbrella and you've mentioned some of the jargon already, net zero, <laughs> carbon neutral, um, science-based targets and, and language is something I've been thinking about personally a lot this this week, just that maybe we've seen less stuff with SDG language on it in the past couple of years or, or so. So I wanted to get your view on whether businesses are still talking about SDG 13 or is it all about net zero and carbon neutral now? And if it is, are they interchangeable terms in your opinion? It's a really good question. I suppose the 
The difficulty with the SDGs or supposed SDG language is that they were written for government. They, Although there's this huge recognition that we need business to be acting on them, the, the language of the SDGs is not written for business. And I think often organisations really find it difficult to translate that um, into something that's uh, that means something for the organisation and, and into meaningful action without losing the real essence of the goal. If you look at at the targets uh, of SDG 13, those targets are around uh, strengthening resilience and, and um, adaptive capacity, uh, integrating climate change measures into policy and planning, and then improving education and awareness. So something like reducing carbon emissions, which is really practical action that a lot of businesses are, are doing, that only really falls into the planning and education side of, of SDG 13, despite the whole goal itself being called climate action. I think if we're talking about climate action that businesses can actually take, if we're looking at you know reducing carbon emissions, that actually fits more closely with um, SDG 12, which is on responsible consumption and production, or SDG 7, which has targets about energy efficiency. So I think there's a, a bit of difficulty with with using the um, with using the language of the SDGs to talk about very practical climate action that, that businesses are taking. I guess, of course, the other barrier to using the SDG language is that it relies on a common knowledge of the SDGs. And sadly, you know, particularly in the UK, that's that they're not really something that is as widely known. So I guess many businesses are using language like net zero because it doesn't need that translation, so to speak. Um, and I think there is a greater common knowledge, not just of people within the organisation, but also people that they're trying to engage with, whether it's suppliers or customers or clients. There's a, there's a much greater knowledge of, of what that means. That makes sense. And I guess the other thing is also that all of the global goals are, are interlinked. So if you're acting on SDG 13, you're not just acting on emissions, you're, you're acting on some of the other bits and pieces of that 17 piece puzzle. So I'm sure we can talk about that too in a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, and something that you mentioned there is about like net zero not necessarily needing as much translation. Yes, it's definitely two words compared to yeah, 17 points with more than 160 targets and indicators underneath them. Um, but something we've been seeing is that not everyone understands exactly what it means. So net zero tracker, for example, has tracked a big uptick in net zero targets, um, but not a great uptick in, in credibility. So a lot relying on offsets, um, a lot of businesses maybe not properly understanding what that term means. So obviously we're coming up to COP and I wanted to get your <laughs> views on what we can do to get beyond that top level to make these targets better at, at the pace we need to be making them better. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's really important. For for larger companies, we would really recommend um, looking at the science-based targets initiative. It's well recognised, I think importantly, um, it's really robust. And so I think it's one of the most effective ways that, that companies can align their own goals with uh, with that limiting that, that 1.5 degree warming. And, and following that, I think there's loads of resources out there to support companies, not only in setting the targets, but also in being able to manage, measure, engage colleagues because this is going to take engagement with everybody across the organization um, and really understand what kind of action they can take to achieve a, a science-based target. So I think that's what we would really recommend for larger companies. For smaller companies, again, there's loads of great resources out there. I think um, the SME Climate Hub is it's a one-stop shop 
for practical guides and really hands-on tool that can help uh, small companies reduce their carbon emissions. So I think looking at things like that um, is going to be really helpful. I guess the other the other um, resource is actually just networking with other organizations, talking to other organizations and understanding where some of that best practices is, is coming from. Because I think there are a lot of challenges. Um, we did a few different um, event series this year and things like data collection has been one of the biggest challenges that people have recognized. But everybody is uh, is facing the same challenge. And I think if if even just opening up that dialogue and talking to other organizations, whether it's in the same sector or um, or learning from organizations of a similar size, um, can be really helpful in tackling some of those problems that are, are creating a bit of a barrier to uh, yeah to taking uh, action at the pace that that's needed. Of course. I mean, I say that net zero targets, some of them aren't even credible, but I, I remember back in 2018, net zero was very much a, a theory. So the fact that we've got so far with it um, so quickly and that we do just have these details to put in and we do have this data collection and collaboration um, going going on is surely cause for, for some hope, I like to think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, and you've mentioned there are a lot of importance on engagement. So with other organisations and internally across your your organisations and obviously the 17th sustainable development goal is collaboration for the goals. So working with the other organisations, but also recognising that the goals ultimately feed into each other in, in all manner of ways. It's an intersectional um, framework. So I've heard a lot this week about yeah, how can we not do, just do a net zero target and get carbon tunnel vision, um, but also do that in, in a way that improves other global goals? So things like just transition, nature based solutions, circular economy um, transition. And, and you've mentioned some of that in, in the compacts work already. So I want to get your thoughts on how businesses can can do that. I think, I mean, you mentioned there the just transition, and that's that's going to be really key. We need to ensure that our transition to net zero leaves no one behind. And so we need to put in place the, the policies, processes and, and sufficient investment to be able to ensure that. So, um, uh, you know, that means creating opportunities for reskilling, redeploying, meaningfully engaging workers to guarantee that everyone has access to, to fair and decent work. And alongside that, I think... We also need to look at the broader implications and um, and interrelations between things like climate change and, and human rights. You know, in the business sector, that's particularly relevant for organisations with large, complex supply chains and those that work with with more vulnerable communities. I think the the danger of um, you mentioned uh, carbon uh, tunnel syndrome. It's it's uh, it's a real thing. The danger of, of a siloed approach on or a siloed focus on net zero is that we risk not recognising those other associated issues and challenges that need to be addressed alongside it. And this is one of our biggest findings in in the measuring up report that um, that we mentioned at the beginning. Um, we've found it largely with government, but we're seeing it with with business too. Is is this um, siloed approach to achieving net zero? I suppose. To pick out an example from the report, which is perhaps looking more at the, the government side, but um, in the UK, transport is our biggest emitting uh, sector. And there's lots of um, investment that's going into improving our kind of um, public transport infrastructure and things like low emission buses and things. If you were, you know, if you were the government or, or somebody making decisions on this and to you wanted to take a really narrow focus on making sure that we were 
reducing those emissions as much as possible and, and really um, achieving net zero, we'd probably invest our resources into the, the areas that have the greatest number of people. But what we found in our report is that 51% of rural public transport users in the UK don't have access to a hospital within an hour compared to just 8% in urban areas. So we need to ensure that any investment in, in decarbonising our transport is not only spread evenly across the UK, but also looks at plugging those gaps so that we're not also you know, isolating people, not limiting access to health or jobs or other services. And if we do that, if we make sure that we're not just focused on uh, achieving net zero, but also looking at some of those broader issues, that more holistic view will then help us achieve net zero. Because, you know, if we're looking at particularly putting um, investment into rural public transport, that's going to reduce the really heavy use um, uh, and reliance on private cars for those journeys, which will, will help our ambitions. So I suppose that's um, perhaps a little bit more of a, a UK-wide example. But the, the benefit of the SDGs really is that they allow us to consider our net zero ambitions holistically. And, and I think, you know, particularly talking about going back to language, that's the crux of it. Even if we're not using the language of the SDGs and we find something more uh, direct language to engage uh, colleagues and customers and stakeholders in, then and just using the framework of the SDGs to ensure that we're not ignoring those other factors is, is really important. And, and I suppose, going back to what I said earlier, I think the other thing that, that we need to do to, um, to ensure that businesses are developing net zero plans that also align with the, the other goals and not you know, missing those, those, those major components. Um, we need to create opportunities for dialogue and, and meaningfully engage with the people that those decisions will, uh, will impact. And, and that was one of the biggest things that came out of our, our recent climate and human rights webinar series. And again, out for measuring up, we're really at danger of leaving people and, and places behind. So we need to include them in the conversation so that we can come up with solutions that, that work for everyone. And for business, that means um, colleagues and, and not just those around you, but HR teams and financing teams, procurement and marketing teams, um, you know, everybody. Um, and it means your suppliers, your communities, your customers and, and clients. Having holistic conversations, I think, is the only way that we really can ensure that our, our climate strategies are not then undermined by our own failure to, to address all of the other issues. Thank you, Jessica. Lots of food for thought. I've been scribbling away some some notes there to to sum this up. So definitely, it sounds like with the bus example, it's a case of not just what's even, but what's equitable, um, which is something that I've heard a lot a lot this year. And as you say, that the importance of talking to people properly, not assuming what they want, um, and taking that holistic approach is so important. So those are my personal takeaways from your points there. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you've summed it up nicely there. <laughs> Great. Well, with with that in mind, I will close off our call for this afternoon, Jessica, because I'm sure you're very busy. Thank you very much for sparing the time to talk about SCG 13 on this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you once again to Jessica for kicking off this podcast. We're going to take a quick break now and return with some insight into the water based SDGs after that. Before we do, I want to leave you with a quick tea time teaser question to get us all brain engaged mode on these topics. And the question is, how many people globally don't have access to clean water close to home? Is it A, 552 million, B, 663 million or C, 771 million? Join me after the jingle to find out. 
Hello and welcome back to this episode of the ED podcast, a special marking our Sustainable Development Goals Focus Week for 2022. I'm recording this on the last day of that week, 23rd of September, and what a week it has been with the UN General Assembly meeting, Climate Week NYC and the Global Global Goals Week also taking place. I'm sure many of you listening will have taken part in these events or at least followed along with the news from them keenly. So I'm hoping this podcast can help us recollect our thoughts and keep the conversation going. The second half of the episode is going to be dedicated to the water based SDGs, SDG 6, Clean Water and Sanitation and SDG 14, Life Below Water. To get started, I asked a little tea time teaser before the jingle, asking how many people globally don't have access to clean water close to home. The answer is C, 771 million, the highest of the three numbers that I put on the table for you. And that estimate comes from WaterAid. The number of people without access to clean running water actually inside their homes is far greater, 1.8 billion by UNICEF's estimates. It has been said many times that water is life and that access to water is necessary to achieving all of the SDGs. Here to help us track how businesses are providing water and sanitation to communities and where they could be doing more is WaterAid's Senior Private Sector Advisor, Ruth Loftus. How are you doing, Ruth? Right, good, thanks. Yeah, really well. Pleasure to be here. No, thank you very much for for sparing the time. I know we've just mentioned that, yeah, it's been a very busy summer and season for all things to do with water. If it's not droughts, it's floods. If it's neither of those, it's it's water pollution. And if it's neither of those, it's water access. So thank you for sparing the time. I'm presuming it's been quite a busy season for WaterAid. It has. And we're just on the back of um, the Seaweed World Water Week as well, which I was in Stockholm for two weeks ago. So that was a busy flurry of events. It always is at the end of summer. Um, So, yeah, great to be back in the office again. Of course. And yeah, thank you once again for calling in from from the office. Um, I guess the obvious place would be with with an introduction to to yourself, Ruth. I guess that a lot of our audience will be aware of WaterAid's partnerships with the with the private sector. Um, so it'd be great to hear a little bit more about that work and how how you do that in your in your role and how long you've been with with WaterAid leading that work. Sure. Um, so as you said, I'm senior private sector advisor at WaterAid. I've been here for about six years. Um, background: I'm kind of a water management expert and worked in the se- sector for about ten years. Um, and more and more, my role has evolved into working with companies that are coming to us and wanting to work in a more strategic way on how they manage their taps, toilets, and their hygiene behaviours, and all the SDG six stuff that that, that encompasses. Um, So I work with companies that are wanting to be more strategic and a little bit more innovative in how they integrate taps, toilets and sanitation into their business models. Um, It's also great timing because um, as this change has been evolving um, in the corporate space, um, water aid strategy um, now fully embraces working with the private sector. Um, It did it did formally um, in the past, but also it's kind of a new trajectory um, on working more and more with the private sector. I've heard of some of yeah the big corporate partners for for WaterAid, but it'd be good to get a picture of what sort of businesses work with you guys. And you say you've been doing this for six years. So have you seen more businesses join or a particular different kind of, of business join in that time? Um, so we work with a range of different companies and sectors across WaterAid. Um, obviously, the water utility sector of the UK are some of our champion partners, um, and that's how WaterAid was formally started. Um, and we also work with a range of different um, companies and corporates from the beverage sector to the apparel sector, 
um, increasingly ICT, so the tech sector, increasingly interested in their water management um, and SDG6. Um, and so, you know, and the apparel and the agriculture sector, that's through their whole supply chain. Um, so, you know, it touches on various different points of the business. Um, so the apparel sector, all the way through from cotton through to the retailer um, and all those stages in between. And then also um, the agriculture sector from smallholder farmers to big commercial farmers and then all the packaging and all those sort of pieces in between. So any any size or shape or type of company WaterAid fully embraces working with um, and more and more we're increasingly seeing companies coming to WaterAid wanting to understand how they can embed and wash within their strategies um, and how it's relevant to their product or commodity that they're making or selling. I'm glad to hear that about apparel and agriculture because I understand that they're very water intensive industries but also that a lot of people that work in supply chain in that might not have um, good good wash access so I guess that's why it lends itself well to that sort of partnership. Yeah well I, I always think about the way we work with um, companies in kind of different ways. I mean, a company needs to manage their risks, but also their opportunities. So every single company needs to think through the risks of what they need to try to manage. So whether it's um, physical access to that commodity or resource that they need, um, the reputational risk, the, the regulatory risk or the financial risk, and more and more companies are coming to work with WaterAid um, because they are reliant upon wash or fresh water. So to give that in a bit more of an example, it's either a direct input into their product. So like in the beverage sector, um, we need water in the, the, the whatever we're drinking or in the agricultural sector, it's part of the, the commodity that's being grown or indirectly the, the water sanitation and hygiene piece comes to play because um, there's huge numbers, like millions of people underpin these supply chains, they're the workforce. And if they don't have access to taps, toilets and, and good hygiene behaviours, then they're not going to be healthy and prosperous and happy and and uh, and good in their work. Um, and, and I can talk a little bit more about that in, in a bit. Maybe we've just done some really interesting research um, to actually prove the financial return on investment for why companies should be investing in this stuff. Yeah, I guess we could touch on that now if you'd if you'd like to, Ruth. I mean, it seems like a bit of a, a no brainer that people that can't access wash are more likely to get sick more often or they'll have sick family members that they might need to care for dealing with things like dehydration. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit more about that, that research and why quantifying that is so important, that would be great. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, it's really timely. Um, we've um, embarked on some research in 2018. Um, in effect, companies came to us and said, look, we know it's good to invest in taps and toilets and good hygiene behaviours for our workers in the supply chains and in the communities where those workers live. But actually, we really need that bang for the buck. You know, how do we prove to our CFO um, and our suppliers in our supply chain that it's actually worth doing this financial investment? Um, so we set about doing this research through some pilot studies um, with companies um, um, Diageo, Gap Inc, HSBC, Ecoterra, which was formerly um, the tea business of Ecoterra is formerly from Unilever and also Twinings. So those companies pulled in some funding and we did some pilot research all around the globe in different supply chains, different sectors on how and, and why investing in taps and toilets and hygiene behaviours is good for the business. And we managed to, um, I mean, first and foremost, the most important thing is we did some really good projects that resulted in some really good benefits for the people in the workforce. Um, but then secondly, we were able to quantify how that impacted their productivity 
um, you know, how many T-shirts were made or how many jeans were sewn, how much tea was picked, how the absenteeism decreased, how the medical costs um, spent by the company decreased and things like that, and then extrapolate that into a return on investment figure. So some really standout figures that are really really kind of exciting for me was in the RNG sector, the ready-made garment sector. There was a factory where we did the project where for $1 invested um, in that two-year project, a $9 was returned from that investment. And then equally as exciting was in one of the tea estates where we did the research for that $1 invested in the two years of the project, a $5 return. And that's two years of that project. So there's some really compelling evidence um, and so we launched this research actually at World Water Week just two weeks ago. Um, and the companies that were in the room with us and presenting alongside us, you know, Michael Alexander from Diageo, for example, was a big champion of this project and also a big, big funder of the project. And we were sitting alongside each other and he he just speaks so compellingly about the importance of wash. It really underpins this, the sustainability and resilience of his business. And he was saying, you know, this is the this is the silver bullet solution. Well, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, maybe not the silver bullet, but it's, you know, it's a really compelling what they've been wanting for many years to convince their, their CFOs uh, that this is actually makes good business sense as well. Sorry, I went on a bit long there, but um, you can tell I'm a bit passionate about this topic. I think it's a really compelling piece of research. and It's been a long time in the waiting. No, not at all. It's yeah. I, I was speaking to someone separately about this the other week, and obviously we've all heard the um, the phrase "water is is life." But he said, "Well, if water is life, then wash is is dignity and is livelihood." Yeah, um, so yeah, obviously super important. And I think the CFO piece is quite interesting. There, I was going to ask about the ways in which businesses frame water and 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 work with water aid, saying that you know, as you say, that once maybe wash was a charity piece or a side project or a donation, and now it's more more strategic. Um, I'm presuming that does need yeah the CFO and the the top management to be engaged with this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's all sorts of pieces of the puzzle that have helped us get to this space. You know, the ESG agenda that's coming out so strongly, the environmental, social and governance piece um, that's really driving companies to report on and be better performing companies that that's helping to drive investment in water and wash. Um, but there's also kind of this movement that we've seen at Watertrade over the last decade from you know, companies investing in CSR to actually evolving into it being part of their core business. You know, if they don't invest in the taps and the toilets and the hygiene, whether it's fundamental to the commodity that they are making, um, whether they need the quality and the quantity of water or whether they need the healthy workforce to make the product. Um, you know, if they don't invest in these things, then it you know undermines the sustainability of their business and the long term resiliency of that business. Of course, got it. And I think that a good way to close this conversation out, Ruth, would be to give some more top tips about how the private sector should be working on SDG 6 in the 2020s. And you've, we've mentioned some things there, like looking at not just the risks, but the opportunities as well, taking a strategic approach as, as, as well. But I know that, yeah, this decade has so far brought its own unique set of challenges around this I remember at the beginning of Covid a lot of people were suddenly saying oh we we should do more on wash immediately um hand washing and social distancing and things like like that so yeah to close us out Ruth your your top tips for private sector action on good SDG 6 practice this this decade 
Yeah, I mean, that's a huge topic, isn't it? Goodness. Um, so I think um, some top tips from me would be, you know, trying to encourage companies to think beyond their factory fence line and go out into the supply chain beyond their factory fence line. The UN right to water and sanitation, you know, is um, it's a responsibility of a company to respect that human right to water and sanitation. And a company needs to understand what their sphere of influence and impact is in that. So I'd say, you know, step beyond the, the factory fence line, consider your supply chain. You know, in the leather sector alone in India, we, it employs more than four million people. So if you invest in taps and toilets and hygiene for those four million people, that has huge potential reach, not only in the workplace, but in the communities. So that's that's my first thing, supply chain, I think. Um, we've got to talk about climate change. You know, it's the it's the the thing that's um, coming to the forefront at the moment. We've got hot blooming ahead of us. Um, I think if, you know, if climate change is the shark, the water is its teeth. You know, that well-known saying that everybody talks about now. WaterAid's mantra is very much about climate issue as a water issue and a wash issue. So WaterAid is working really hard with its partners at the moment to make sure that we are making their businesses resilient and sustainable in the long term, thinking about climate resilient wash solutions. So that sounds more techy than it needs to be. I think that's basically all about um, future proofing your business. Can we think about drilling deeper warhole, borehole, sorry, more boreholes, thinking about how we store that water in longer term, how we think about times of rainfall and how we can capitalise on that rainfall more effectively, thinking about rainwater harvesting. There's been some fantastic solutions in Bangladesh, for example, where they've got big problems with groundwater abstraction and trying to think about rainwater harvesting more effectively. So I think the climate resilient wash solutions has got to, got to be out there. And um, I guess the other top tip I'd flag is we've got to think about COVID. COVID has really highlighted the importance of hygiene, which in many ways has been a bit of a silver lining for the wash sector. That sounds a bit backward to, to suggest that it's a silver lining from COVID, but in many ways, I think it's highlighted the importance of hygiene behaviours. It's the first time that hygiene has been on, on a board level discussion. Um, so companies are now really aware of the importance of hand hygiene, how it can really undermine a workforce if you don't have these good behaviours in place. And obviously, you've got to have those three things together. You've got to have the facilities, the taps and the toilets and accompanied by those good hygiene behaviours to make a strong, resilient workforce. Um, so I guess those would be my three things kind of think beyond your factory fence line. We've got to think about the impacts of changing climate um, and how we make our business resilient and also COVID and, man and managing how how we maintain those good behaviours that have been instilled in us for, since the COVID pandemic. Well, yeah, I think that second point in particular ties back nicely to the other parts of this episode where we're talking about SDG 13. Um, so obviously with the SDGs, the main thing to bear in mind as well is that it's all connected. Number 17, partnership and connectivity for, for the goals as well. Um, so thank you, Ruth, very much for sharing your insight this afternoon. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. Another thank you to Ruth. What a real eye opener. And hopefully she's given some practical tips that you can take away for making sure that your organisation's approach to water stewardship meaningfully contributes to SDG 6. Ruth's talk actually provides a nice smooth segue into our third and final guest interview for this episode, which is all about how our behaviour change in the bathroom could help to prevent pollution on beaches. PHS Group are kindly sponsoring this episode and this guest interview is being provided on their behalf to tie in with their less flushing, more discussing campaign and white paper. Here to talk us through why our bathroom habits tie so closely into SCG 14 and how we can effectively change them is Tara Austin. 
She's a consulting partner at Ogilvy, the behavioural science practice. Please join me in welcoming our third and final guest, Tara. A very warm welcome to our podcast today, Tara. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. The sun is still shining in London today. Uh, end of summer, end of summer indeed. Um, and thank you very much for popping on and representing our sponsor um, for this episode, PHS Group. Although I understand that you're not actually directly from um, PHS and I know I've just gone over this a little bit in the introduction to the podcast, but it'd be great to hear a brief introduction to yourself um, from, from yourself to set the scene. Absolutely. Uh, so I do not work for PHS, although they have been my client for the last few months. I've been lucky enough to be working with them. Um, and as I suppose, you know, all of your listeners know uh, PHS uh, uh, dispose of menstrual waste. And we've been working with them on a project uh, around how to discourage people from flushing menstrual waste. And uh, we've been doing that as uh, I've been doing that as part of my role. Uh, I'm a partner in the Ogilvy Behavioural Science Practice. Ogilvy is one of the biggest communications agencies in the world. It's part of a group called WPP, um, and it's uh, you know the home of the original Mad Men uh, back in the 1960s on Madison Avenue. But things have changed a lot since then. And uh, 10 years ago, we founded the Behavioural Science Practice, which is now part of our consulting uh, group. Um, in order to solve problems where the answer wasn't necessarily advertising. And um, my, my the founder of our business is a man called Rory Sutherland. He's a fantastic TED talker, wonderful book called Alchemy that I will plug uh, if I can. And um, Rory often says that you go to an ad agency when you want an ad and you go to a PR agency when you want PR and you come to us when you don't really know what the solution is. Uh, and in this case, uh, with the work that we've been undertaking for PHS, I think it's a, a perfect example of the kind of tricky, uh, wicked problem of behaviour change and the things that we know we should do, but we don't do. And where there is often uh, what we call an intention action gap, people say they want to do something, but then they actually do something else. And in the case of uh, flushing menstrual products, uh, it's exactly that kind of uh, problem. So it's been a really interesting one to get to grips with. And I've had the entire uh, agency team kind of biting my arm off to be a part of this project it's been fascinating. Great well I understand that the dilemma that PHS is looking into which they've they've titled to flush or not to flush um, <laughs> um, in the white paper resulting from from this research is one of those issues that, as you say it's got lots of different levers and barriers um, in it so it'd be great to hear about the overall behavioural science approach that you take to to unpick that I'm I'm not a specialist in behavioural science. It does fascinate me, though, and I'm sure that a lot of people listening will be in that same boat. Yes. Well, I mean, I'd love to start off by sort of sharing with you the overarching approach we took to the report, because it's something that I think is relevant for any behaviour change problem uh, that, that you or, you or your listeners might be facing. And it's um, uh, we used a model on this project that uh, we use very, very widely. Um, it's called the COM-B model of behaviour change. Um, and it sits at the heart of the government's behaviour change wheel. It was developed by uh, Susan Mickey uh, and a, a bunch of people from UCL in, back in 2011 now. Uh, you might know Susan because she's sort of featured on the news in the last couple of years since uh, behavioural scientists have been thrust into the spotlight with uh, uh, the arrival of coronavirus. 
Um, but the COMB model is a very thorough model uh, by which um, uh, we can analyze a problem strategically. The model consists of three core elements, capability, opportunity, and motivation. Capability is, can I do the behavior? Psychologically, do I have the understanding that I need? In this case, do people actually know that they should be binning their tampons? Are they aware of that? We saw in the research that that wasn't necessarily the case, um, that people hadn't had the education uh, that we might expect. Uh, school hadn't provided that education. So uh, lack of psychological capability is certainly a problem. Physical capability is, is you know, are, is someone physically able to access the bin? Is it sort of close enough to them uh, that they um, are able to, to do that? And can they physically lift the flaps or something? So it's not really such a problem in this case, physical capability, people are pretty uh, able to access the bin. But that's capability. When we talk about opportunity, the O in the mix, um, the environmental opportunity is really the facilitating factors around the behavior. And here we look at, at you know, do people have the tools that they need? Do they have the bin uh, in order to bin the tampons? Do they have uh, uh, appropriate wrappers in which to wrap the tampons? What's the environmental facilitating factors? And that's part of the opportunity as well as the social norm. Is it socially acceptable to flush instead of to bin or the other way around? Um, and then lastly, if that's capability, opportunity, the last element is motivation. And this is the piece that we very often talk about, particularly with things like advertising campaigns. We will try and change or alter people's motivation uh, to do a behavior, to take part in a behavior. And that's because quite often we're, we're referring to their reflective motivation, the things that they know to be true. So do they, do they in this case, the question is, do they believe uh, that it's worth um, uh, flushing their tampons, uh, binning their tampons rather than flushing them? Um, is, it, is it worth it to them? So here, do they understand a relationship potentially with the environment? Um, at this exact moment in time, as we are uh, recording, uh, we are seeing in the UK a, a, a big scandal uh, around um, sewage being pumped into our seawater and onto our beaches. Um, but people don't necessarily understand the relationship between uh, that kind of sewage uh, leaking out and their own flushing behavior? Do they have the reflective um, belief that if they uh, bin their tampons, that it will help uh, ensure that those, the, those sewage leaks don't occur? That's certainly a big gap that we've seen. Um, but then another part of motivation, with capability, opportunity, and motivation in the COMB model is also automatic motivation. Now, here I mean not necessarily how people consciously think about the behavior, but their, their habits. Do they have a, an existing habit around uh, flushing that is, that is competing with our desire to uh, bin the tampon? Um, it could also be things like um, disgust. Disgust is a really powerful uh, driver of behavior. It's a thing that's kept the human species alive for uh, millennia. Um, and uh, we know certainly that there are issues, there are, there are barriers to binning when people feel the bin itself may not be hygienic or when it is visibly stained, for example. Um, so some of those automatic motivations might come from yuck, 
but they're very visceral. Now, the great thing about the COMB model is in having these, um, these different lenses, so psychological and physical capability, automatic and reflective motivation, which I just covered, and environmental and social opportunity. These kind of six lenses provide us with a really thorough examination of the problem. And um, in putting together this report, uh, we, we took uh, these lenses and um, undertook some kind of primary research with um, 2000 women uh, regarding their uh, binning and flushing uh, behaviors in order to really unpick what were the barriers and also most critically of all, what are the opportunities? Great. And that's what I did want to dive into next, really, to look at what have been the biggest barriers to behaviour change in this area, because, as you say, this is a model that can be applied to anything where behaviours need changing. So it'll be different in in different scenarios. And I know you said that a big one is, as you put it, the yuck factor. Mm. Um, but what 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 did you find were the, were the other major barriers and opportunities to remove them? I mean, the, there are three kind of strategic areas, I, I think, that we we identified uh, under which there are a whole bunch, a whole raft of different um, opportunities, as you say, that really context dependent, whether we're talking about your home environment versus a work environment, those kinds of differences. Um, but but I mean, first and foremost, people really do need more knowledge uh, and we do need to kind of shift attitudes. I, I happen to uh, be on the advisory board of the Vagina Museum, uh, which is now up in Bethnal Green in, in London. Um, and I can tell you that um, even women who uh, and, and anyone who possesses a vagina, um, are people are very, very poor at understanding uh, their own uh, gynecological anatomy, their menstruation. There are certainly taboos in this field. Uh, that mean that um, there is in some ways a lack of a social norm. Uh, people don't necessarily know what other people are doing. Uh, they don't necessarily know that binning is uh, in fact normal behavior and is the correct behavior. Um, they, they're not necessarily having that education either in school or having the conversations within their peer environments. Um, so we need more messages. We need messages on PACs. We need messages on rappers. We need kind of some pretty bare bones, basic increases in the psychological capability, as I mentioned earlier, um, and, to, and, and to understand the relationship between the binning behavior and uh, what that actually entails. Um, so we often talk in uh, behavior change around sustainability um, about psychological distance. The idea that I, in the here and now, am distant from uh, consequences that will occur in the future and often far away. In the case of climate change, we're often talking about um, you know, increased sea levels in, in, in island nations very far from here that are in the future. And so there's a great deal of distance uh, between that state and where I am in this precise moment. And we often seek to close that distance in a, in a myriad of different ways. Um, sometimes you might see in the case of climate change, people will do things to close that distance by uh, showing things like a sign on the beach that might physically show, OK, this is going to be the sea level in 2030 if we keep going. And in this case, uh, in the case of flushing tampons, um, 
we want we want people to understand that that when they flush uh, that tampon, where it might end up. Um, one of the most shocking uh, statistics in the report, and I'd really encourage anyone to take a look at it, is that uh, th there were 4.8 pieces of menstrual product discovered per 100 meters of beach. Uh, so in, in a kind of cleanup operation and an examination of UK beaches, within 100 meters, there were nearly five uh, menstrual products washed up on those beaches. Um, and so we really need people to understand the sea starts in that toilet bowl and that when they flush their products, uh, they don't necessarily end up where they might imagine somewhere far away for somebody else to deal with. Absolutely, they can end up on Hastings Beach. And um, I think the more that we can do to close the psychological distance, uh, show people uh, where this uh, behavior, what the resulting factors are, and also ideally tap into some loss aversion, um, by which I mean telling people what they have to lose by flushing tampons, i.e. clean beaches, um, rather than focusing on any kind of benefit. So that that's the first thing that it seems like the lowest hanging fruit very easy to do. Um, we also need to change the environment. We'd like to, um, you know, make the binning behavior as convenient as possible. And, and this, I think, really comes to bear both in the workplaces of uh, any of your listeners um, and in their home environments, um, making sure that the bin is inside a cubicle, or certainly inside your home bathroom. People simply are not going to bin it if there is no bin available. Um, and they will uh, um, ultimately flush. Uh, we, we've seen that behaviour um, is, is far too common. Um, so we really need to uh, maximise that opportunity, perhaps, uh, in, perhaps even um, ensuring that that bin is dark in colour. If you have the opportunity to buy those bins, even for your home bin, that the, that the bin, perhaps you don't have to touch the top of the bin in order to, um, in order to bin your item. And perhaps there are uh, sanitary bags available uh, so that people don't have to wrap um, in toilet roll because we, as I referred to earlier, we see that disgust is a really significant barrier around um, around the binning behaviour and stained bins uh, are, are something that people don't like to touch. We can, of course, we've all got very, very familiar with um, hand sanitizer. So if you have that opportunity, uh, introducing hand sanitizer into uh, the, the cubicle or environment itself, uh, we believe from our research that that could have a, a positive impact of it. It's something that we have yet to test. It's something I'd love to test. But making the binning behavior feel as clean and, and, and sanitary as possible. And indeed, as I say, uh, said first, making the flushing behavior feel very dirty and like something that is a, a polluting behavior, which of course uh, it is. Um, the last area is really around uh, disrupting habits and routines. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of flushing behavior is sort of too habitual. People have got into a pattern of behavior early on in their lives. We really here, we do need to reach them before they develop that flushing habit. The ideal scenario, and um, I, I worked on, on Kotex many years ago, so uh, apologies to all the sanitary manufacturers of the world, but frankly, uh, the moon cup or the uh, sanitary uh, menstrual cup 
uh, in which there is no need to flush a, a, a sort of silicon device that I'm sure many of your listeners will be familiar with, um, those uh, men menstrual products completely remove the need for flushing, uh, providing them for uh, young uh, women entering, uh, entering into schools, I think a very important opportunity. But equally, um, we're aware in the behavioural sciences of something called habit discontinuity events. Corona was a great big one, but people, when they move home, um, when they, yes, go to university, perhaps, or uh, rent a new house, um, they have these big habit discontinuity events. So taking a new job is a habit discontinuity event. And um, in this period, there is opportunity uh, to create new habits. And so it may be that for new renters, um, the water authorities can and should be providing uh, menstrual cups. Uh, as people move into a new home or, or, or new area. So increasing knowledge, shifting attitudes, changing the environment, the binning environment itself, making that convenient, making binning feel as clean as possible, and then ensuring the wrong habits don't form and that we, if they have, uh, that we are trying to reach um, our appropriate audience in moments when uh, it's a good chance to form new habits. I could even just be the new year uh, or on their birthday. I've actually I've gifted a moon cup to many of my friends on their birthdays. But, um, you know, new year, new you, uh, the beginning of the month, the beginning of the week, we, we're all better at taking on new behaviours. Uh, the challenge with menstruation being it doesn't happen every day. Um, and so we do need to talk to that audience um, at critical junctures. Of course, and that's so much food for thought there. I feel like what I do want to recap on, obviously, as you've mentioned, there um, some barriers and potential um, opportunities on each part of that combi level. And when I've been talking to people about other behaviour change research or schemes on previous episodes, it's often been said that, you know, you have to come at this from all angles. Um, mm -hmm. A small ch a small change might not be enough to create the right conditions to really make that habit um, stick. So four takeaways for our listeners who are maybe trying to get that behaviour change in their organisation. Um, is is this the case that you, you might need to have a multi-pronged approach to this? Absolutely. In the behavioural sciences, we often talk about a lullapalooza effect, um, which I, I'm, I'm in the applied world. I'm not in the ac academic world. Um, and that that is to say, throw everything at it, throw the kitchen sink at the problem. Um, often these things multiply one another. Um, and particularly when it comes to shifting a social norm around a behavior, the more frequency, the more exposure you have to the correct message in different channels from different people, uh, the more you can drive that social norm. And, and I mean, in an organization, it could be as simple as saying, you know, most uh, most people who use this bathroom, most people in our business bin their menstrual products. Just having that signage um, in in your bathrooms uh, can and should, uh, as we understand it from academia, make a difference to how how people behave. The classic example, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with this, uh, Robert Cialdini cites in his book on influence um, that in hotel uh, bathrooms, when people were invited to um, recycle their towels, and they were encouraged to do so by the for the environment. Um, the recycling of the towels. Oh gosh, I think it was about maybe 20% or something. 
Um, and then uh, when they put signage in the bathrooms saying most people recycle their towels, please do so for the environment. What they saw is that that establishing that social norm had an influence. And I think it went up to something like 35 percent uh, recycling rate. But but what's really interesting about that study was when they said most guests of this room recycle uh, their towels. They it, it it leapt up even higher. It was it was almost 50 percent, like 47 percent uh, recycling rate for the towels when people had been told, instructed, hey, other people who use this room do the same thing. Now, other people who use this room have got absolutely nothing in common with you. Uh, really, you don't you don't know that. But we are such creatures of um, social herd and norm um, that just establishing um, someone in the same scenario did this thing is actually a very powerful um, driver of behavior. And so I would encourage anyone to try wherever possible to establish that norm within their own uh, within their own business. Thank you, Tara. I don't know whether that's comforting or disappointing that we are that predictable. Um, but I think that's all the time we have on our call today. So thank you very much for hopping on and talking about to flush or not to flush. And uh, get out there, buy some menstrual cups and please, please bin your tampons because we don't want to we want to keep our beaches uh, as lovely and clean as possible. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. A big final thank you to Tara and to the PHS team for supporting this podcast and getting us all thinking about how our day-to-day -day actions impact our natural environment and water systems. As I've said, that was our third and final interview for this episode, meaning it's nearly time to bring it to a close. Before I do, a reminder that this podcast is not a standalone. It is part of our SDG Focus Week, which also includes two free reports for you to download, webinars to watch on demand and all manner of exclusive features and interviews. You can recap on all of that by visiting ed.net, clicking events in the top banner and then selecting SDG Week 22 in the drop down menu. So if you like this episode and we really hope you have, please do go and check it out. Also, a quick reminder about our podcast relaunch. It is coming and we can confirm that it is coming before Halloween. Hopefully it'll also be coming with Matt and Luke on hand and a new co-host too to introduce you to. We look forward to hearing from you all soon with a new look. So new imagery, new jingle, new guests, new co-host and maybe even a new name. And this will all be coming to you from a swanky new recording studio where we will have finally got to grips with the equipment. I'm super excited for it, but for now, it's a goodbye from me for our SDG themed episode this year. Goodbye.